0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. I just want to join my voice to Pete's and um, let you know there was no subliminal message in giving you jerky. We don't think you're a jerk or anything like that, Um, but uh, we are happy for the dads that we have in our church, and we're so thankful for each of you men and the example you set. And I've commented to people before about our church that one of the things I'm most grateful for is I just don't have... Uh, any difficulty finding uh, role models, guys that I want to be like and guys that I want to follow, especially in that area of guys who are dads. Uh, There's just a lot of wisdom um, and uh, a lot of guys trusting the grace of God and walking um, before him. So it's just a joy to be in community with you guys and be in church with you. So thankful, thankful for you. I normally, on Mother's Day and Father's Day, will typically preach a message on that subject. I I didn't do that Mother's Day, and I'm not doing that today either. We're just sticking with where we are in Ecclesiastes. Um, But the message I'm preaching here today, this passage, you're not going to have any trouble as a dad making connections. And I think as we make connections to this passage and application personally, Um, it will serve our families tremendously. So if you are a dad with kids still under your roof, um, I I think that this theme will will help you as you're considering how to point your kids to Christ and raise them to know the Lord. Um, And if you've been with us as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, this passage feels very different. Much of Ecclesiastes has been, whoa, you read it once and you go, I'm not, is that really in the Bible? Did he really just say that? Some of the things that the author of Ecclesiastes says, this passage is the kind of stuff we might expect uh, the author to say, because he's now pointed us to God. Many of the passages, he's not talking directly about God. He's talking about the emptiness of life apart from God, but now he's going to direct us to the Lord. And so we're reading chapter five, verses one through seven. I'm reading from the ESV. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity." But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for leading us for these weeks and this journey of this book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you for the way that you've spoken to us and um, the way you've been shining your light on um, the way we think about you and the way we think about the world and the way we think about others. And we pray today that you would just speak to us clearly through this passage. Open our eyes To see you open our hearts, to trust you, um, and help us to be hearers and doers. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and grant me strength to proclaim your word truthfully and faithfully as we seek to honor you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, really, the last sentence, the last phrase of this passage is the heart of the passage. It's really what's underneath all that he's saying. Look at verse 7. He says, there, uh, but God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. Before that, he says, where dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now, most of the book so far has been talking about vanity. That is the, the meaninglessness, meaninglessness of life apart from Christ. And now he's starting to weave in a second theme, which is life apart from Christ is vain. It's meaningless. It's empty. But we are to live instead knowing God and fearing God. He's speaking about how we encounter God. We are to think of God with awe. We are to think of God with wonder. With, uh, with fear is the word that he uses. It's not so much a, a terrified dread for the person who's a Christian, for we've received forgiveness of our sins in Christ. So it's, it's not as if God is harming us or has wrath towards us as believers or something like that. That's not what he's talking about. But he is talking about this high reverence this revering God. And he's not just speaking about fearing God in general, but he's speaking about fearing God with reference to our worship. Look at verse one. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. So the, the context here is the house of God. He's talking about worship. For him, the author, who is likely Solomon, it would have been speaking of the temple. Um, we don't have a temple now as believers. We worship in all kinds of different contexts, but we gather together as believers and worship. And he's saying, when you do that, the house of God is the people of God. When you gather with the people of God in worship, like Sunday morning today, guard your steps on your way. That is, be careful. Think about your attitude. And how is your attitude to be? Well, he tells us at the end, we are to fear the Lord. So if we take the beginning, which is guard your steps when you come to the house of the Lord, the end, which is the fear of the Lord, we sort of get the theme that he's talking about throughout, which is gathering in the church with the people of God with the fear of the Lord. And he gives several instructions about that. The first one we just read, number one is guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. To guard means to approach with care. It is to watch over. If you're guarding something, you're watching over it, you're protecting it. And he's saying, guard your approach, guard the way you come into the worship of God. Why? Because we're to fear the Lord, we're to have reverence for the Lord, we are to revere the Lord, and that doesn't happen just accidentally. We must be intentional and thoughtful, and consider who it is that we come to worship as we gather with God's people. So take care about how you come to worship the Lord, to revere Him, because that doesn't happen naturally. We must prepare, we must guard, we must be careful with our steps. Now, I'm using the word revere. That is really a good, a good idea or a good translation when we read, like in verse 7, about the fear of God. It is to revere him, to be awestruck, to be amazed by his character, his holiness, who he is. We are to revere him. So when you think about your own worship or when you think about our worship together, is that something you think about? Do you revere God? Do we revere God? Is our worship service together reverent? Would be another way to ask the question. Is it reverent? Now, if someone were to just look externally at the environment, I think someone could draw the conclusion that we're not particularly reverent. That, That we're not particularly reverent in our worship if someone is looking at the environment. I mean, for instance, I'm speaking to you now in casual attire. Actually, it's kind of dressed up for me, but casual attire. Uh, I'm not speaking to you in clerical garb. I'm not in a, a robe or a suit. And so the delivery of even this message uh, is is rather casual. If you think about the design of the room we're in, uh, it isn't long and narrow. It fans, and uh, it fans so that those over here and those over here can see one another, the family, the people of God, the church gathered together. Uh, We have high ceilings, but not super high ceilings. So there's not a sense of loftiness necessarily in the design of this particular room. Our our music style tends towards pop culture and not high culture. And uh, so because of that, uh, it's more casual in presentation, the music that we sing. Uh, If you came early, you would see people out in the lobby laughing Talking, engaging, high-fiving, hugging, it doesn't particularly appear sober, but warm and engaging and relational. The style of speech that I'm using right now is, is, is conversational. I yell some in the sermons. My volume's a little louder than it would be if we were having coffee together. But it's, it's more similar. It's not like I'm using a stylized rhetoric. Or a high oratory, where if, if you saw me at a coffee shop, you'd say, whoa, you're so different when you speak in a formal style with different words and language as you enter the high lofty pulpit. It's so different than what I engage you at the coffee shop. So this is louder, but essentially similar and, and conversational as I am seeking to announce and proclaim the truth of God. So someone might assume that we don't appear very guarded and that we don't appear very reverent, but that would be to the person who makes the mistake of assuming that environment and externals determine reverence. And they simply do not. It is the heart from where we find reverence. It is the mind. That's what we're going to see here. He's going he's not going to talk about the environment at all. It is the heart, it is the ear, it is the mind, it is the mouth, it is the soul, it is the approach that determines our reverence. The reality is you could be dancing around and worshipping in a thatched hut in a village in Africa and you could be just as reverent in your approach to God as you could in a cathedral in Europe. It's possible to sing quite reverently in the fear of the Lord, accompanied by an electric guitar. And it's possible to sing quite irreverently and flippantly, accompanied by a pipe organ. It's possible to view the holiness of God in your jeans, wearing jeans. And it's possible to have very low views of God in a suit or a dress. The external environment does not determine the fear of the Lord or the reverence of the Lord. It is our heart that determines that. It's primary. Now, I wouldn't say, I don't want to overstate the case, I wouldn't say that environment is completely irrelevant because I don't think it is. And even as we're talking about designing and building a future, uh, a building in the future, this is something I think is important, that we do want to communicate through a building certain t- truths about what we're there for. So I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm not saying style is irrelevant. I'm just saying it's not primary. It's not primary when we come before the the Lord to worship the Lord. Ecclesiastes here, he is not telling us to look at our environment, he's telling us to look at our God. And when we do, to fear our God. And when we approach, to guard our steps before the Lord. In the commentary by Leland Ryken on Ecclesiastes, on this particular passage, this is what he says. Ecclesiastes 5 was written to help us take God more seriously when we worship. This passage is about taking God more seriously, engaging God more seriously, thinking about God more seriously when we gather for worship. And so there are several things he communicates that have to do with the fear of the Lord. One is to guard our steps when we come. The second is to come to listen. Look at what the second part of verse one says, guard your steps. And then he says to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. To draw near to listen where? Well, he's talking about the house of God. He's saying, when you gather with the people of God in the house of God, draw near with this primarily and in the first place in your mind. Listen. Listen. The message of the gospel, the truth of God, is something that is heard. It is a a word, a spoken word. Faith that we are a part of. And so we listen, we come to listen. Faith in God itself comes by hearing the word of God, Paul tells us, in Romans. Now, he's contrasting coming to listen with the sacrifice of fools. So what is the sacrifice of fools? Because we don't want to offer that, whatever that is. Well, he doesn't tell us what the sacrifice of fools is, but it's contrasted with coming to listen. So, it could be, he could be talking about a literal sacrifice. People offered sacrifices in this day. It could be the person who says, you know, I'm coming to offer my sacrifice, but listening to God, attentive to God, desire to obey God, that's sort of secondary. Um, We see an example of this with King Saul. King Saul, at one point, offers a sacrifice that he was not authorized to offer to the Lord. And Samuel, the prophet, comes and... Rebukes him. And this is what Samuel says to Saul, who disobeyed the Lord, in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. See, Saul was disobedient to God, but he thought it was okay because he was doing a religious duty in offering this sacrifice to God. And this is what Samuel tells him. Look, God would rather have you listening to him than he would having you offer the fat of rams. God's more interested that you're listening to his voice than, than you doing what you think is appropriate and will please him. He said it's better to obey than to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, which were means of, uh, that worshipers offered to, for the forgiveness of their sins. And Samuel says, hey, you, you can be offering these things to the Lord, but what God really wants is you to listen to him and obey him, not merely perform the religious duty of offering a sacrifice. Now, we don't have sacrifices anymore as we gather to worship, and the reason is that, is that is because Jesus is our sacrifice. He is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what um, John called him. Why is he the Lamb of God? Because in his dying on the cross, he is offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. So we don't offer sacrifices because we have a sacrifice that has been offered one time, once and for all, the Bible says, in Jesus Christ. So while that, if it's a literal sacrifice of fools, we could say, well, that doesn't apply to us, but it probably means more than that. I mean, I think we could certainly think of the sacrifice of fools as being religious activity that we tend to think takes the place of listening or hearing or obeying. See, we can substitute, maybe not sacrifices, but we can substitute religious activity for what the Lord really wants. I mean, our attendance here today. One is, well, I go to church. That's my religious activity. So God must be pleased. I must have done my duty. I must be doing the right thing. I attended church. I'm really glad that you're here. So I'm glad that you did attend. But I'm glad I attended with you here. Uh, but that's not... thats not uh, That's not sufficient. We're not just attending and offering our attendance to God. A lot of people serving all over the place today. People are serving in children's ministry right now, teaching our kids. And people came early and will stay late. And all kinds of places people are serving. But it's not our serving. It's not our attending. It's not our giving. We just received an offering. People gave financially to the Lord. That's not what he has in view here as primary. If we think we can offer some religious activity to somehow make ourselves right with God, that's not what is in view. That's not even the right attitude that when we gather, it's not, what am I doing for God? That's in the first place. It's what is he doing for me? And do I come with ears ready to listen and to obey him? A disciple, we're we're called to make disciples. That's the mission of the church. We're called to make disciples. And a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. A disciple is a learner. And so to be a follower or to be a learner of Jesus means that in the first place, at the most basic level, that we're a listener to Christ. We are a listener. And that's why he says, guard your steps when you come to the house of the Lord. Draw near to listen. That is the first thing we are to Think about when we first moved into this building um, and moved out of a elementary school into this building, um, I stated a an opinion, a preference it is not a rule, it is not a law, it is not a standard at grace church it 's one guy 's opinion that 's all it is, but my opinion was that we should call this room an auditorium and uh, not a sanctuary and, and that 's a uh, That's counterintuitive because we're doing something religious here, so it seems like it should be a sanctuary. But here's what a sanctuary is. A sanctuary is a holy place. And in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, there are not locations that are particularly holy. There are people and there are activities that are holy, but there's not locations. Jesus doesn't speak of a location. It is to to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the Jews the gospel comes. And so what makes this, this is a sanctuary as we were gathered, but what makes it a sanctuary, it won't be a sanctuary in an an hour when everybody's gone. What makes it a sanctuary is that not it's a holy room, but that holy people are gathered here. The people of God are called saints. Those who are set apart because Jesus has forgiven our sins and declared us righteous. We are set apart to God and we are the holy ones. So when the people of God, sinful as we are, when the people of God are gathered, God declares us as holy people, when we're gathered, it is a sanctuary because it's a holy people that are gathered, but not not just the building itself. It's not a holy place, and thus G2 on Saturday nights can play wiffle ball in here. We play wiffle ball. All kinds of things happen in this room. I mean, I wouldn't play wiffle ball in a holy place, but we serve communion and sing worship songs on a wiffle ball field. That's where you are. It's a room is, is what it is. Uh, Recently, I was here for an activity and a video came up. This was not a worship service, but a video came up at the end of this activity with Cool and the gang. I think that's who it is. From the 70s, singing the song Celebrate. Good times, come on. And um, so in a sanctuary, that would have been incongruous and offensive, frankly. uh, But in an auditorium, it was a wonderful joy um, to hear that and see that. What is an auditorium? Well, an auditorium is literally a place where something is heard. I'm going somewhere. This isn't a rabbit trail. An auditorium is a place where something is heard. That's what it literally means. The Latin is a place for hearing. And and Ecclesiastes says, when you come to the house of God, what should you be doing? You should be drawing near. Now, they would have called it a sanctuary. The temple certainly was. But they would have drawn near to listen. The very name auditorium means that when we show up, our first duty and responsibility is to listen, to hear what God has to say from his scripture to us. So the sanctuary assembles in the auditorium to hear from God. That is what is happening. We're hearing from God. We're hearing Him speak through His Word. This is the God-breathed Word. God speaks to His people and reveals Himself through His Scripture. We're hearing His praises sung. We're hearing prayers offered from people and on behalf of people. We're hearing words of fellowship occur as people talk about the Lord, one with the other. So we gather to hear from God. And that hearing doesn't just happen when we show up at 11.15. We can prepare for that hearing all week long. Really, we want to be a people who are praying during the week. God, as we gather, would you speak to us? Would your Holy Spirit graciously, mercifully, kindly speak good news to us? We need to hear good news all over again. We need to hear the truth of who you are. We need you to reveal yourself to our hearts. And God speaks to our hearts through the vehicle of our ear. Into our soul. So come ready to hear we pray. Consider how you come. Sometimes I know how it goes. I mean, it's a victory. If you have little kids, it's a victory just to make it. If you get into the parking lot, celebration. There should be confetti and horns and the whole deal, because you made it on a Sunday morning. I understand. But I think we to have a loftier goal than I made it. I, I came, and my soul was at rest, and I was ready to hear, and I entered the, the place of God. This is the house of God, because the people of God are gathered. I entered the peat with the people of God, ready to hear from God Almighty. My soul was as undistracted as I could make it. That's a goal. I got here with, with margin. I didn't just kind of flop in, exhausted, and 30 minutes through, I finally tuned in. Make it with some margin where you got a little space. And you can come in and restfully, ready to hear God. Seek to avoid distraction and conflict so that we're not rushed. We've got so many voices in our ears. So many voices speaking to us all the time that this is a time where we come to shut out all voices but God's. And listen to him. Sometimes that affects how we spend our Saturday nights. Sometimes our Saturday nights can, can, be, can, can affect our Sunday mornings. And hinder our ability to hear. I'm not laying out standards or rules or laws about what you do on Saturday night. I'm simply saying this. Let's posture ourselves so that we're ready to guard our steps and come to hear God speak. And ask him to speak and he will. So, we guard our steps. We come to listen. Third thing he says is don't be hasty with your speech. Be careful with your speech. Look what he says. Verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So he's saying, pay careful attention to your speech as you come to the house of God. Watch what you say is what he's saying. And the basis for that is on thinking about who it is we come to hear from. What does he say? He says, you know, don't be rash. That is, you know, don't be thoughtless and just fly off the handle is kind of what he's saying with your words. Uh, don't be, you know, inconsiderate and just say whatever comes to mind, but be careful with your mouth. Um, don't be hasty with your speech For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So what he's doing is he's saying, just as you come to the house of the Lord, think about who you're coming to worship. And he gives this distinction. God is in heaven and we are not. He's speaking about the radical difference between God and us. He's not living under the sun like we are. He is in heaven. He is eternal. He has no beginning. Uh, He is all-knowing. We are very limited in our knowledge. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever He wants. We're very limited in our power. We are weak. We are dependent on Him. He is dependent on no one. No one. He is utterly holy, without flaw, completely righteous. And we are sinful. Now, we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And we are becoming more righteous as we're growing and being conformed to His image. But the reality is, our righteousness does not compare to his blazing holiness. And so he says, when you come to church, remember that God is other than you. Remember that. Now, this isn't all the Bible says about how we relate to God, because this is a phrase talking about his transcendence. That means he's above us, and he's separate from us in his holiness. There are other passages of Scripture that talk about his nearness. He is with us. We sang that this morning. He's with us by his Spirit. Jesus came to us, the God-man, became flesh. God became flesh in Jesus Christ. He came near us. And what did Jesus do? He, he, He got together with the worst sinners of the culture, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and revealed the love of God to them. He welcomed children. He said, you know, he welcomed them in his arms when the adult disciples said, hey, 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 don't bother him. He said, let the children come to me. There was a playfulness about God when he came to inter- interact with children. He wasn't austere and strict like, whoa, whoa. The really sinful people would have wanted nothing to do with him, and the kids would have said, keep your distance. So he was very, he's very near to us in Jesus Christ. That's a biblical truth, that God is with us, in us, and near us. But that's not all the Bible says. The Bible also says he is holy, he is distant, he is other than. And what Ecclesiastes is saying here is that when you come to the house of God, have that in view. Who are we listening to? We're not sauntering in and hanging with our buddy Jesus on Sunday morning. That's really not what's happening here. We're coming in, in Christ, welcomed to be sure. But we're coming before the God who is holy. And so he's basically saying, guard your steps when you come. Compose yourself. Be intentional. Think about who it is you're coming to worship. This is a God that is near you, yes, but completely other than you. And you wouldn't even know him were it not for his mercy and his grace and his kindness. He's come to us in Jesus Christ. He's saying, think about who it is you worship and then just speak appropriately. Now, what's in view probably, he's really, I think, talking about the heart of our speech. I don't know that he's giving a word count. Let your words be few. There are some people in the room rejoicing, saying, Great, after this week there'll be shorter sermons. You're supposed to have a few words when you come to the house of the Lord. Um, I'm not sure he's going for word counts, but he's definitely talking about thoughtful, intentional, measured speech when we address God in our worship. One of the things that could be going on is he's undermining the idea that if we just use a lot of words and speak like a religious activity, that somehow God is impressed with our piety. With our religious-sounding words, that impresses God. You know, Jesus said just the opposite. When Jesus taught us how to pray the Lord's Prayer, which you're probably familiar with, likely familiar with, you know, he opened it up by saying, look, don't think that a lot of wordiness is going to impress God. This is what he said in Matthew 6. This is Jesus. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you you know the rest of the prayer probably. So what he's saying is don't just be firing off a bunch of rote prayers that your mind is not engaged in. What the Gentiles do is they go to their gods, the pagans, and they assume that by saying a lot of words, somehow they can appease their, their deities, their gods, and they can get what they want if they use the right words. And uh, repeat the phrases enough. He's saying, "You're, you're not going to impress God and get you know. You're not going to impress God in prayer by using a lot of religious language or a lot of repeated phrases, a lot of empty phrases that don't mean anything to you. That that's not how it works with God. He knows what you need. So if you're there just trying to manipulate God with a lot of religious phrases, He knows your heart. He knows what we need before we even ask. So come to your Father." That's the God who is near. Come to your Father who welcomes you, your Father in heaven. That's the God who is distant. The Father who embraces us the, with his arms. The God who in heaven is the Holy Father who's completely righteous and relates to us because of his love and his mercy and his kindness to us. More importantly, we, not just wordiness, but insincerity, ultimately. We don't impress God with, our insincerity. That's what he said in verse 3. Where, there's a, where, where the dream comes with much business, a fool's voice with many words. One person summarized it saying, work leads to many dreams, and foolishness leads to many words. That's what he's saying. Where there's a lot of words, there is foolishness. One form of hasty speech he addresses here is vows. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth not lead you into sin. So in the Old Testament, you see at various times, people made vows before God. That was part of, um, sometimes even in worship, they would do that. But people made vows to God. What's a vow? A vow to God is this. God, if you do this, then I will do this. Uh, One time, Hannah Uh, or or regularly, Hannah went to the temple and she would, uh, she had no children. She was praying for a child, particularly for a son. She was praying and asking God to give her a son. And she made this deal with God. If you give me a son, I'll give him up to your service, religious service, I'll make him a Nazarite, is what she said. And so God gave her a son and she did. He was raised in the temple and uh, was in religious service to God. So that was a vow that she then paid off the, the vow, it could have been a financial thing. People paid vows for financial reasons. God, I'll give this much or I'll do whatever. I'll make this sacrifice if you do so and so. So people did that somewhat in the Old Testament. We don't see that very much in the New Testament. Um, actually we have Jesus telling the religious people, you know, don't be saying, well, if I vow by this, I have to do it. If I vow by that, I don't really have to do it. Like people were making vows, like their fingers were crossed. Like I vow and they had the hand behind their back fingers crossed. So they don't really have to do it. They were essentially doing something goofy like that. So he was saying, just let your yes be yes. And your no be no. So he's saying, when you make a commitment, just follow through with it, just follow through with it. Well, we don't really have those kind of vows other than wedding vows. So we do have vows in a marriage service when people are taking covenant vows. So it would certainly apply to that when you make a vow before the Lord in the house of God at a marriage covenant, uh, follow up with that. But we, we do make commitments to God, if you think about it. it may not be vows, but they are commitments. Like baptism, for instance. When a person is baptized, comes up out of the water, raised to walk in newness of life, Uh, baptism is primarily about God. It's the fact that it represents the fact that Jesus came, that he died for sins, that he was buried and raised uh, from the grave, and that those who trust him by faith received new life and were walking in new life. So it's primarily representing who Jesus is and what he's done. But there's a second implicit thing going on there too. You're saying, as I come up out of the water, which represents I'm raised to walk in new life, I intend to come up and follow Jesus. I tend to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. So there is an implicit commitment made there. Or how about when parents dedicate their children? We don't take vows when we do that. But parents are certainly saying, Lord, I offer my child up to you. I want to raise him or her in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Or when people join a church, some churches have membership vows. We don't have that. We don't have people take verbal vows when they join a church. Um, But we do have them make a commitment that they are committing to the Lord, that they want to walk out their faith In community. They want to walk out their faith among believers. They're not isolated, but they're part of the community, God's community. So there's an implicit commitment that we make there. Um, And he's saying, when you make some type of a commitment, follow through on it. Here's another one. We often make deals with God as well, privately. God, if you give me a job, I will give sacrificially for my income. Or if you give me a raise, Lord, I will fund your work or something like that. So we may not have stated vows, but we do make commitments. And what he says is in verse six, that let not your mouth lead you into sin. Uh, don't, don't be making commitments that you don't fulfill. They, he says, if a messenger messenger comes, don't say it was a mistake. I guess in the temple, they had some messengers. You made a promise. Somebody came and collected on it. And so he's saying, if they do, don't say, Oh, you misunderstood. Um, you thought I said I'd give a goat. I said I'm going to go. Yeah, that's it. That's what I said. You misunderstood. Saying don't be saying that's a mistake. You didn't understand what I'm saying. Just do what you commit to do, is what he says. Because your mouth can destroy the work of your hands. Now, we, we don't pay vows like that. But I think we can see ourselves if we're honest in this text. I know I can see myself. One author, Derek Kidner, said, this is how he described this passage we've been reading. He said, the writer's target is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing. That means singing in worship. The writer's target is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite gets around to what he has volunteered to do for God. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying to the people of God. Guard your steps. Think about what you're doing. Don't be hasty with your speech, but come and be a listener. Be careful about what you say and sing and pray. Think about that is what he's saying. It's easy to feel convicted by this passage. He's saying, come ready to hear, come ready to obey. Don't come and miss the greatness of God. Don't come and presume upon God. Don't come and take God for granted. Don't make for commitments that you forget about. How many commitments have we made? Oh Lord, this will be different. This year will be different. This time will be different. I'm going to fill in the blank. How many commitments have we made that we don't even remember? What he's saying is your God is in heaven and your God remembers. It's a it's a it's a intense convicting passage. And I'm sure there's not a one of us in the room that can read this passage and feel, well, I got that down. But here's the good news. Here is the good news today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you come to worship. You come to the house of God in union with Jesus Christ. The Bible says we are in Christ. We are with Christ. We are in Christ. You come to worship God in Christ. You come in relationship to Christ. You come forgiven by Christ. If you are here to worship as a believer, then you are coming as one who God says, Jesus is your righteousness. That is what 1 Corinthians says. He has become our righteousness. We come before God welcomed in Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ, because we have received him in faith. This is the good news is that we're not here based on our performance. We're not welcomed before the father today because we've listened well enough or spoken well enough or obeyed well enough to be welcomed into his presence. We come here welcomed into his presence because Jesus has died for us. And because Jesus is faithful in his obedience, he is our righteousness I never thought about this much until this week, but do you know Jesus was a worshiper? Do you know that Jesus, who was God, came to the house of God? He entered the synagogue and worshipped. Do you ever think about that? Jesus, who wrote the Psalms, inspired the Psalms, wrote the Psalms, then sang the Psalms to God the Father. They sang the Psalms, typically. And Jesus never sang a word that he did not mean. Do you know that Jesus heard God's Word, the Old Testament, read in the synagogue and in the temple? And do you know that when the Bible was read, the author of the Bible listened to the Bible and obeyed every word that was ever read? How many times do I hear an application? How many times do I preach an application and walk out there and fail to live the application? Jesus never walked out of the synagogue and failed failed to do one thing that the Bible called him to do. Jesus never made a commitment that he failed to fulfill. Our whole hope today is that Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus says he will never leave us or forsake us, and we're here gathered today banking on that, that he's with us. Jesus loves us. He has loved us with an everlasting love, and we're banking on that today. That nothing can separate us from God. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are showered, drenched, flooded in the love of God today. Cared for by God. He is our Father, our Shepherd. And He receives us and welcomes us, not based on how good we are, because none of us, I just ran through these verses, none of us have fulfilled this. Are you kidding me? How many times has our mind wandered when we're singing about the holiness of God and we're thinking about lunch? If we were held by the standards of our thoughts and our actions in every worship service we've ever been in, we would come up wanting, but there is one who has never come up wanting. And that's Jesus Christ. And we're welcome to the Father in Christ, in union with Him, forgiven by Him, loved by him, welcomed by him, and we are growing, becoming more and more holy, more and more like Christ over time, where we are beginning to obey these truths in an ever-increasing way before God. It's really great news that he's heard and obeyed the scripture perfectly. He is our righteousness. So what does that mean? If Jesus is my righteousness, do I just say, well, it doesn't really matter. I don't need to be a hearer and careful with my speech and guard my steps. It doesn't really matter. He did all that. May it never be. The Bible says we don't sin that grace may abound. These are issues of sin that he's talking about here. If you say something and don't do it, your mouth led you into sin is what the Bible says here. If we come presuming upon God, casual in heart, flippant in nature towards the holy God of the universe, we've sinned. So, do we just sin and keep doing that that grace may abound? May it never be. What we do is we are to come gratefully into his presence. Listen, we are so blessed. We're not living under the sun, meaning that we live with no view of God. Under the sun, hopeless. The Bible says if you live that way, life is hopeless. If you don't know Christ, it is hopeless. It is meaningless. It is empty. It's like a vapor that you can't grasp, it's like a smoke that you see for a second and then is gone. We don't live that way. As Christians, we are invited to come into the house of God hearing from the Word of God to receive his word, to receive communion, to receive fellowship, to sing songs of worship before him. We get to come and encounter our creator. We get to come and hear from God personally through us. We get to come and individually be shepherded and fathered by God Almighty and together be shepherded and fathered by God Almighty. We have access to the voice of God through the word of God. And that is everything. So we guard our steps, not because i got to go to church. And I guess that verse means i got to be there on time. And I guess i got to listen. No, we have access to God Almighty. When Jesus died, the, tor- the curtain in the temple was torn. So that we have access to God and Jesus Christ. And are welcome to hear good news. To believe good news. To listen to good news. To sing good news. And to speak praise to God and gratitude to the one who is holy and has welcomed us before his presence. We come into his presence grateful for what he has done for us. It is a high and holy privilege. So we want to respond in awe. And we want to come prepared into his presence. Guarding our steps doesn't mean that on the way out we've got a list of ten rules you need to do and things you need to do to guard your steps next week. And if you don't fulfill every... That's that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about all the stuff you got to do. We're talking about the profound privilege of coming into the presence of God, of experiencing the presence of God with the people of God, hearing the good news of God, being enveloped in the love of God, being welcomed, welcomed by God who has declared us righteous. And having declared us righteous, having taken us as a father into his home, welcoming us and loving us and caring for us in union with jesus christ forgiven welcome so we're here's what we're told come boldly to a throne of grace i think you can run into the house of god i think you can we can run in joyfully in heart i'm not sure literally but in heart we can run in and you're welcome to run in physically if there's no one in the aisle or whatever but we can run in to worship god with joy because we are welcome to a throne of grace we can do that, and we get to do that. And as we do it, we are to reflect who is God and what, he is, what has he done for us. He is God in heaven. We are on earth. And so we come with grateful hearts, using our words to declare how great he is, using our minds to think about how wonderful he is, using our ears to hear the truth of God that we may respond Lovingly to him, that we might obey by God's grace and God's power. You know, I said I wasn't going to preach a Father's Day message, but I'm going to preach a Father's Day paragraph, maybe. I don't really have this in my notes. It's like one sentence. So between one sentence and one paragraph, here it goes. Dads, I'm, I'm not sure there's much we can do that's greater than giving our, heart, our kids a picture of the greatness of God and the joy of God that is experienced in the worship of God, to give them a heart for God and for his people. We can't give them a heart, but to point them to God and his people and to let them know that when we gather with God's people, it's not just, just kind of what we do to fill the time before the Cowboys game comes on or what we do just because, well, I guess that's religious, leaving them the impression that that somehow makes them right with God. But we want to be those who think about who it is we're coming to meet that those who are coming to listen, coming to hear, coming with welcome, coming with fear, coming with adoration, coming with love, coming with reverence in our hearts, to listen, to speak, and to obey, to be those who lead our families into the presence of God with joy, with passion, with gratitude, and with the fear of the Lord. Now, that's not all there is to fatherhood. That's You know, an hour and a half one day a week, all the preparation that maybe goes into it, and then an hour and a half a week here, preparing our hearts during the week. So there's more. There's there's more to fatherhood than that. But we could do a whole lot worse than giving the next generation a vision for encountering God personally as we gather on Sundays. And as I interact with God that way, it will influence my family and set an example for my family. May God help us to do that more and more to come joyfully, eagerly, gratefully, fearfully, intentionally, guarding our steps, coming to listen, being careful with our speech, and being grateful for the God who has made a way, inviting us into his presence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that you've made a way. Lord, when we read these verses, if we had to stand on our record, um, None of us could stand. But We thank you today that we're standing on Jesus's record and every verse we read, Jesus fulfilled perfectly. Thank you, Lord, that you sent a savior to save us from our sins, to forgive us by his loving death and resurrection for us today. And we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that you welcome us. We pray that we would be a people that are reverent of heart, that we think big thoughts of you because you are a big God, that we have, that we have a fear of you, a healthy fear, that Lord, we see you in, in your holiness and also in your nearness and your love. Lord, help us to walk that balance. We don't want to be a church that ignores the holiness of God and just talks about your nearness, but we don't want to be a church um, that ignores uh, your nearness either. Lord, we want to see you as near. We want to see you as holy, and we want to relate to you in Christ. Thank you that you welcome us to a throne of grace, and we offer ourselves today as living sacrifices for your glory because of Jesus In his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.